This episode is supported by Vegamore. I'm a month and a half into my Vegamore journey. I don't know if you've ever had a garden and planted seeds, but when that first little growth breaks ground, it's exciting. And on my very head, I can see some new growth in the areas that I've noticed hair thinning before. And it's exciting to see those little babies coming in. I use the shampoo, conditioner, and the grow serum, which have a lovely, mellow, warm citrus smell. I've been consistently using this and it makes my hair feel soft and full. And it's really important to me that I use safe and conscious products whenever I can. And Vegamore is 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com slash mind and use code mind at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression, and this podcast aims to share it all. From personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. As you all know who've been listening to the podcast for a while, it is very important to understand culture and how it impacts us in our own individual experience. And also, for those of us who might not be within the culture of the person we're speaking with, to remember that uh, cultural context, cultural experience really has a huge impact on how uh, we, we as the individual within that culture, experience uh, the world as well as our own mental health. And we must always understand that people are experiencing their mental health within their own context as well. My guest today, Kalena Ka'opu'u'okalani Lanuza, is coming on to share her experience as a Kanaka Maoli, which means Native Hawaiian, She is a doctorally prepared, dual-certified family and psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner and a certified lactation counselor. She currently resides in the unceded territory of the Ventureño Chumash, which is commonly known as Ventura, California. Some of the things that she discusses in our conversation together is the connection between colonialism and settler colonialism, cultural and generational trauma, and mood and anxiety disorders in Native Hawaiians and Pacifica. The other things she shares with us are some of her personal story, um, but also her work now and how the use of reconnecting to culture and land can be an important element in assisting Native Hawaiian and Pacifica who were removed from their ancestral land. How helpful that can be in the healing process through the perinatal period and beyond. I thank you for being here for this really important conversation. Let's meet Kalena. Welcome, Kalena. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, mahalo nui, Kat. It's an honor to be able to share space with you today and to um, 
just to to be able to talk about Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander perinatal mental health. It's a, a true passion of mine. And, and I really mahalo you or thank you for creating this space for all of us across the country. I know there are many, many listeners, and I'm I'm really excited to be here with you today. I, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing with us. Um, I'm really excited to learn more about the intersection between perinatal mental health and the culture of Native Hawaiians and Pacifica. Is, is that correct? Pacifica, yes. A Pacifica. So, the, yeah, there's so much to get into, and I know that this is a really important area for for all of us to be understanding more and learning about, and uh, not only you know for for those of us who are learning about the, the culture, but also as you know, there are just so many ways that culture is for for many reasons has had to blend in in the past and being able to to talk about all of this with you is a hopefully a way to uh, not have that be the case anymore to have to to blend in and pretend you know things don't exist when they do exist um, right yes so anyhow i'm really interested to know more about you and how you became interested in perinatal mental health Okay. Um, so I, uh, you know, as, as you said in my bio, I am a family nurse practitioner and a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. And I've been a nurse for almost 30 years now. It's been, it's been a while. And a lot of my career has been focused on the women and children aspect of caring. And let's see, in 2017, I started working in women's health and mm-hmm. I, started to see in the OBGYN setting that I was in a lot of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And I, mm-hmm. I didn't really know, you know, what could be done about this. I experienced uh, perinatal anxiety when I had my son in 2014. And so I knew that, hmm, you know, this is something similar that I felt. This is what I'm seeing in my clinical practice. Mm-hmm. So I really started to dive in a little deeper um, to the whole perinatal, uh, you know, world. And um I decided to go back to school and get a doctorate degree and do my big project on screening in the OB setting. Mm. And with that project um, and getting more involved in this sort of uh, area of practice, I really realized that, you know, there's there's something that I can do as a Kanaka Maoli, as a Pacific Islander, to possibly help the people that are living here. I do live in Southern California. I'm away from Hawaii to help the people that are living here throughout the diaspora if they experience these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of sort of involvement of my realization that perinatal mood and anxiety disorders actually existed because mm-hmm. when I had perinatal anxiety, my OB literally just said, you know, we all go through it. We're j- you just have to go back to work. Mm-hmm. At the time I was working as an NICU nurse and um, it was really challenging for oh, me to whoa. be able to go back to work, having a premature child myself. <laughs> um, and I I just realized, you know, fast forward when I was in this position and seeing this in in a, a Southern California suburban setting and, and women were really having a tough go of finding resources and, and getting the true care that they needed that if there was a way that I could be available to my people who were going through this, because if I was going through it, others were, that I would do that. Mm -hmm. And so 
after I got my doctor degree, worked in OB a little bit longer, really got involved um, in a lot more of the perinatal mental health world. Then I went back and, and did a post-cert in psychiatric mental health in uh, dur- during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I was teaching at a university, <laughs> teaching in a doctoral program. And, and there were a lot of things, you know, that came up for many of us during that time. And, and one of the things as a mother of a young child who I was having to homeschool, was that I, I didn't have capacity to do all the things. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what do I want to do with my time? Mm-hmm. So I went back, um, got the certificate. And then uh, last June, opened my practice. And I opened my practice with the idea that um, I was going to intentionally be available for other Native Hawaiians or Kanakamoli and Pacifica throughout the diaspora. And One of the reasons that I chose to do that was, if we can go back a little bit in Mm -hmm. time, when I was figuring all of this out, was that when I struggled with this in 2014, one of the things that a friend said was, Colin, I think you should go see a therapist. And I thought, oh, hey, I'll do that. Let me figure that out. Who do I want to go see? Mm -hmm. And so intuitively, I just started to seek out people that I knew in my na'au or my gut would be healing for me. So I was flipping through all the online stuff that they had at the time it wasn't as good as now, but I didn't see anybody that looked like me. There there was nobody. I saw a few Latina therapists, um, uh, but there really weren't folks. And so then I thought, okay, well, that's okay. I can just look back home. I'll, I'll just go and look at the psychology today stuff or whatever back mm-hmm. in Hawaii. And then I learned that I couldn't see somebody there because I lived here mm-hmm. and there were these laws, right? The barriers, another barrier, this, this, you can't go into another state unless somebody's licensed in another state. And so, so in, in this time period where I really needed extra help, like to connect to, to all the things that would have nurtured me as a kanakamoli and a new makuhina or a new mom, I couldn't find that. And so I had to do something else. And I found a a white therapist here and and they helped me move through what I needed to move through. And and they were very helpful. But now I know that, geez, there were things that I really probably could have used Mm -hmm. from another Native Hawaiian person. Mm -hmm. Um, And so again, when I found myself still living here and being in this space, I thought, okay, I'm going to create my practice. And my practice is going to be called Mana Mental Health. Um, And Mana is to Hawaiian people and many people across Pacifica. It's this sort of internal energy that we believe we have and that all things have. Even a pohaku or a rock has mana. Um, Of course, you know, lava has mana. The wind has mana. Every living person, everything that I think most Western people wouldn't consider living like a rock has mana to us. And I really wanted to just put it all out there in the name and everything that I was going to be here to help figure out why your mana was so off and to figure out ways in which we could together tap into these resources that I know, you know, this ancestral wisdom that I I know and I'm so fortunate to be able to still have to to help us, you know, help help each other, this other person on the other side of my screen, rebalance their mana. So that's kind of how I found my way in this world of perinatal mental health and more specifically how I chose to be available to other Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders in the diaspora. Oh, fantastic. Um, right. Isn't that uh, amazing just how how clear things can become uh, once you've been touched <laughs> in certain yes. ways? I mean, it, it sounds so 
I don't, I don't know a better word other than kind of like a, a calling or a direction or a something. Mm. Um, maybe there's a better word for it, but I mean, just hearing you and then seeing you talk about it, I can see just how deeply rooted it is um, in, in terms of importance for yes. for you, but but for what you want to do in the world. Yes, I think. Again, being a nurse for many, many years and sort of growing up in this very Western system, um, you know, there's there's a lot of push and pull that goes on there. But when I sat through uh, the pandemic and when I sat through um, and lived through and was present in the many things that are going on in, in Hawaii um, with respect to sovereignty, indigenous rights, um, our land, our vai, our water, and again, if I've been a nurse for 30 years, then you know I've been in this realm for like almost half a century, right? I'm, I've been here for a while. And I thought, what do I want to do with the rest of my time mm. here? And what do I want to do for my young Keiki, my child? What do I want him to see? And this felt like the truest space for me to be in right now, mm-hmm. to use all the the degrees and the, the, the training and all the stuff and to use it in a way that I felt was pono or right. And just to use it in a way that I could help other mothers and families who are experiencing really, really challenging times during this time period of bringing new life into this world. And um, so, yeah, it was, if you will, a calling. And I'm so, so happy that I was able to hear that calling. Mm-hmm. Because so much of my career has been, as as we talked before we, we, um, we really got into this, so much of my career has been me as a Kanaka Maoli in very Western spaces, right? Sitting at very Western tables, being in faculty meetings as the only Indigenous person, being the only Indigenous provider. And so with that comes sort of, again, what you were talking about, this acculturation or assimilation, if you will, into sort of this Western paradigm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so, again, happy that I was able to hear whatever it was, you know, my ancestors, my kupuna, the akua, the amakua, all these other things that came to be that that really helped tell me like, no, Kalina, now's the time. You, You be available for this. And it's been such a beautiful thing to be able to be available for this, this work. Yeah. Um, in if you can expand a little bit on i guess uh, sitting on this side of like you know coming out of the this episode is supported by factor eating better is better with ready to eat factor meals and ready to eat means pop it in the microwave for 2 minutes and done i mix in a few of these meals into my rotation for the days that we're on the run or that i don't want to make anything I chose the high-protein and calorie-smart options, one of which is the mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice with garlic roasted green beans. This is restaurant quality and so tasty. I can adjust how many meals I get in my order, as much or as little as I need every week. Plus, I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime, which comes in really handy for our busy schedule. Head to factormeals.com slash momandmind50 and use code momandmind50 to get 50% off. That's code momandmind50 at factormeals.com slash momandmind50 to get 50% off. This episode is supported by Hungry Root. I am a creature of habit when it comes to food, like I buy the same stuff in the store and generally make the same stuff over and over. Not really that fun. 
So in order to shake things up, I use Hungry Root. I can pick a whole meal and they send me what I need to make it, but I will also just let them choose so I don't get into my rut. And it paid off. I got the chicken shawarma non-flatbread. These are flavors that I wouldn't have thought to put together on my own and they totally work. It was so yummy and so easy to make. And bonus, I also received for free organic roasted chicken breast that I threw into a salad for another meal. Hungry Root is my partner in healthy and yummy living. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Mom and Mind listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash cat to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash cat. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Kind of Western medical stuff, let's just call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sitting on this side of seeing now after some of your healing that you could have really used a native voice for support. What for you, I guess, do you think now is what not could have been useful for you specifically, but just in general, like um, for people who are dealing with a perinatal mental health condition who are not getting the kind of culturally connected support that they need? Yeah, I think one of the beautiful things, if you will, about COVID and that time period is our ability to connect um, through social media and through Zoom and all of these Mm -hmm. other things. These weren't really available or as readily available before. And so even though um, laws still exist that you know, prevent, um, you know, practitioners in Hawaii or other parts of Pacifica from seeing folks throughout the diaspora legally, if you will, um, Mm -hmm. who are therapists or psychiatrists, um, we can still connect to many, many different things that help ground us as Indigenous peoples, as island peoples. We can still connect with our homelands. We can still now um, take, you know, courses online that, that teach us about our language and our traditional birthing practices that teach us about our traditional plants. So so there are a lot more opportunities to be able to connect in that way. Um, Albeit, I think that there still needs to be more work on the, the legislative front, if you will, to decrease barriers with respect to receiving culturally congruent care. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, I, I appreciate the the reasons for the laws and and you know not being able to see somebody in another state. I I understand all of those, um, but I also think that if we're truly going to reach a, a space of true cultural competence for all of us, um, we really need to look at then okay, folks who are indigenous, who are native, how can they reach this care? Um, it takes so much more than a PowerPoint mm-hmm. to learn. Um, not only about our culture, and I don't even think you can ever learn about our cultures unless you're like in it, right? Because mm-hmm. again, there's that ancestral line, yeah. But it takes so much more than that. And and really, um, as you probably know, that's really all that's offered are a PowerPoint with a checkoff and a certificate, and you're mm-hmm. ready to go. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're considered to be good. And with that comes possibly a lot of harm. You know, and so I think um, really ensuring that we can continue to connect via these electronic means to our our sources, to to you know, to our own people is important. And then also really on the other end to while we're here and if we're gonna be here, really trying to make some some headway in these legislative processes to relook at what 
what culturally congruent care looks like, especially for diasporic folks, is is something we need to do. Uh, right, and, and I, mm, I don't know if if this question is going to make sense, but I, I wonder if kind of the farther, so to speak, people are away from like their their native land, um, how much more disconnected um, people become and like mm-hmm. not really, mm, how can I say, like, it would, it would be hard to know what the, the generational stuff is, uh, bo- both for, for difficult and, and the things that are, keep you deeply connected. Uh, difficult meaning like how and why you're not in your uh, native land or why you had to leave those kinds mm-hmm. of things. It, it would be hard to understand if you're several thousand miles away from where you feel most connected to understand why you are feeling all the things you're feeling. And then in, if you're in and amongst people who also don't, don't have the the same connection to culture. I mean, I'm speaking broadly about culture, yeah. now, um, but how much harder it would feel to, to feel what's the word I want to use? Not held, but um, to understand why you feel the way you feel. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, you bring up a great point and especially with native Hawaiians, we, you know, our people, and, and when you look at our creation stories, we are inextricably tied to Aina. Aina is land. And so now when you have, for instance, I'm second generation diaspora, right? My father came here from Hawaii. I was born here in these waters of the Chumash people. This is where I was raised for a good portion of my life until I was able to go back to Hawaii and, and live. But and I see this a lot in my practice, when you work with folks that are part of the diaspora, it really does depend on how how far removed, if you will, they are from, mm-hmm. from our homeland. And so again, me, you know, I, I only knew this growing up. This mm-hmm. was all I knew. And whatever my father was able to give me and the other Kanakamali around or other Pacifica around. But it wasn't until I actually moved back home and really got to put my feet in that sand and swim in that ocean that I was able to kind of have everything click. Now, that being said, there are folks that I take care of. I'm licensed here in California and in Oregon. So there's folks that I take care of, again, that are second, third generation diaspora, Kanaka or Pacifica. And what does that look like, you know? And that, in my clinical practice anyway, looks a lot like, okay, Let's reground us together. Let's look at what you do know. So this cultural assessment, if you will, I think it's Eduardo Duran. You know, I I don't know if you know him, but he is a Native American psychologist. He does a lot of work surrounding therapy in Indian country. And in I think it's healing the soul wound that he he writes. Um, One of his first things that he does in therapy is really looking at to what level is the person that you're sitting with acculturated. Like to what level of acculturation has occurred and and how has it occurred? Have they assimilated? Have they sort of, you know, like said, no, I'm not doing this. I'm very grounded in my, you know, in this culture. So it just depends on on who I'm sitting with as to what we do. But often um, after finding out, then really in my practice, there's always um, then a, a, a rather quick reconnection to some degree to Aina and to to our source and to traditional practices, even if we have to do that on someone else's land. And so I try to reconnect some of my clients um, to the indigenous tribes where they live, 
just so that they can be connected to, you know, the land that they're on in some way. It it takes a variety of forms, but it really does depend on, again, what you said, how how far removed they are and how much time has been spent mm. away from, from those things that, again, are going to ground us. So a large part of my practice, even though I'm a second PES, I prescribe all the stuff, right? Um, or I can, but a large part of my practice when working with Kanaka Malu and Pacifica is to really reconnect us to, to that, you know, that sort of like big source of mana for us. And so aside from being physically sort of dislocated or located away from your land, um, there's also, you know, the really real ramifications of colonization and settler colonialism um, and how that sort of influences uh, the way in which we we heal or experience, you know, mental health challenges. Um, for instance, you know, Hawaii has been occupied by the United States now for the last 130 years. Um, well, longer, but illegally occupied. And so with that comes this whole challenge of like, okay, you know, you're you're in, in the beginning, my kupuna, my ancestors were literally beaten for speaking Hawaiian. We had laws that prevented us from speaking Hawaiian language, from having any of our own cultural practices anymore, dancing hula, um, any of our olis or prayers or songs. Christianity came in full force. So, you know, all of our gods that we had, those were sort of taken away. So this huge disconnection right away um, when, when all of this happened back in 1893. And throughout the years, as you know, the ones that were left of us, which is only about 20%, um, had children, those children then were taught only what they could be taught. And so, for instance, my father never spoke. He never uh, spoke Hawaiian. His mother um, didn't speak Hawaiian because her mother was beaten for speaking Hawaiian. So, you know, intergenerationally and epigenetically, you have transfer, right, of all of this trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I think the state that some of my clients find themselves in, especially living away from the Aina, which is such a core element of being Native Hawaiian, is that not only are they away from this really healing source, we have, you know, several generations of this trauma that is instilled in our DNA. And so when we birth, when we create life, and when we do these big, big things, historically, you know, we 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 had systems for this, like like many indigenous cultures did. We had a lot of support. And not only do we not have those because we're outside of our space, right? But even if we are living in Hawaii, I think only 20% of the population is Native Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. Um, we we still are really, you know, having these very detrimental effects of intergenerational trauma come through and continued colonialism. So that's like what settler colonialism, right? Um, still trying to have to figure out how to assimilate, still trying to figure out how to live in this space and get back to your source, but you can't because of a variety of reasons. It's it's really challenging, Kat. Um, and I think for, for me as a provider here in this space, you know, in, in the United States, it's something that has to really be part of my therapeutic process. I have to constantly remember the historical context mm-hmm. that comes with whoever it is that I'm working with. For instance, 
you know, Chamorro folks, right? Like people from Guam, that's a different relationship with the United States. That's a different relationship with colonialism. Marshallese folks, right? That's a different relationship too. Samoa, different. There's, there's, you know, Pacific Islanders are, we're a large swath from Micronesia, Melanesia, Polynesia. It's a huge group of folks. And so whenever I'm working with someone in this group, if you will, I, I have to remember what is the historical context? How is it possible that intergenerational trauma has lived through this person and, and you know has affected this person? And then how can we together figure out how we can hold each other and how we can get their needs met in the space that they're in now, living mm-hmm. on somebody else's land with using traditional things as much as we can. So there's no such thing as a 15 minute follow-up for, for my work. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> there's just not, my model is totally different. I, you know, I mean, like, I'm like clumbering snacks. We're going to get into it. Um, <laughs> right. and it takes, it takes a while to unpack some of this yeah. stuff. What you said at the beginning of, of this sort of like, um, this thought process that we're on together is like how, how much separation, you know, how, and, and again, I always, we would really have to look at that. How much is this person separated from who they are as a human, who they are in their body? How much do they want to be connected? Not all native Hawaiians are like, Oh yeah, I want to get right back. And I want to, you know, drink this tea and do this and do that. Um, and that's because we've been here for so long, maybe. And, and we've been products of all that's come in the last 130 years or really after Western contact. So it's important as a provider in this space and as a scholar in this space to really be mindful of all these different facets that come into play when when working with this population. I, I remember, um, I think I was in, I don't know what year of grad school, and I was in an internship that was so very proud and should have been for the time, especially to have an AAPI training uh, for cultural competency. We had this big old binder and each binder was like separated by, I don't know, really huge sections of uh, like broad strokes of culture, like Japanese, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Chinese. And so many different cultures were lumped into this binder And I mean, as you were talking through, uh, you know, just how many different cultures there are um, and their each individual interactions with the United States, I just this picture of this binder showed up in my head, like (laughs) how like, you know, um, you got to ask this culture that question. And it was just such like a blip in in really the the depth of mm, history and, and culture and all of this. Um, that was only just very, very slightly being represented in this binder. Um, And what a disservice that is to call that competency, that there's so much history there that obviously we're not going to be able to learn from a binder um, and then one little section there. But there is this weird... uh, I know it happens in other places too, but a weird lumping together of, yes. of culture that is just so strange, really. Yeah. And I think, you know, for a variety of geopolitical reasons, you know, several, several years ago, I think mm-hmm. in the 60s, 70s, 
the term AAPI and the the sort of connection between Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, you know, was birthed, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think that that served a very um, a, a very specific purpose mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. However, today, fast forward, mm-hmm. I I think actually that that term, what that term means, and what that term does with respect to data collection um, has been a a real hindrance to understanding the true um, incidence and prevalence of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders in the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander populations and mental health in general, um, everything in general. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, COVID was Mm -hmm. a great example. When you look at the data, you know, uh, Pacific Islanders actually were much more hit than Asian Americans, but the data didn't show that. And so then where do the resources go? We we sort of know how all this works. The other thing that is is sort of the bummer about that is that when you look at resources and funding and appropriating funds for programs um, to help folks, um, what you end up getting, if you just take a peek at most of the things that are AAPI, is only Asian American stuff. Mm -hmm. So not only is that true look at where are we here it's not there mm-hmm. but when we ha- when we're sort of you know offered opportunities to get help it's not congruent with our our cultural background and so it, it again just kind of pushes us out and go, you know so i think um definitely again from that legislative front we need to really start looking at ways to disaggregate data if we can, and to create new ways in which we can capture data so that it's truly telling of the actual, you know, problem. Um, In Hawaii now, there is a a, a bill that just passed in, I think it was Senate Bill 99 or something like that. Uh, Forgive me, I can't keep up with all the states, but um, (laughs) this this passed last year, the year before, and it was specifically to capture racial and ethnic data with respect to perinatal mental health. And to have true cultural competency training for everybody in the perinatal mental health realm. And I'm I'm hopeful, as are other people in this space, that that by something like that, um, we'll now be able to see what's really going on, especially Mm -hmm. in in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't offer much to the rest of us here. So just for numbers, there's about, I think the the U.S. Census data um, in 2019 came out with like, there's about 1.4 million Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders living throughout the United States. About 355,000 or so of those are in Hawaii. So simple math shows you that there's like a million of us here. And although that's only like 0.4% of the, the population at large, that's still a million people, right? Mm-hmm. And and if we're having these bills that that you know can finally look at data, but it's only affecting three hundred fifty five thousand people, and the rest of the million are here, what is that for us? It still just gives us a lot of work to do, so that we even know when we are starting to get these cultural competency binders, or we're mm-hmm. having training and you know culture we have a better sense of like what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I want to say about that is, I, I don't know, can you ever be truly culturally competent? I mean, this this has been, you know, 
pushed around in scholarly circles in academia forever. Right. Um, I, I'm of the opinion, no, no, you cannot. How, how can I, as a, as a Kanaka Mali who was born here, you know, in Shumash territory, know what a Chamorro person has experienced if they're first gen here? I cannot. So that that concept of humility or ha'a ha'a mm-hmm. and cultural humility that we've, we've heard about um, and the work that's been done on that, I think is a more... Um, just way to go in in our idea of like how we care for other humans experiencing you know similar things or or like you know mental health challenges oh right yeah I think the the idea of competency needs to just go Um, (laughs) bye-bye bye-bye yeah yeah yeah, for sure and yeah in in my training that's you know, I left with that feeling like I, I knew something and I knew a little bit more than I had known before, but it it, it just does a disservice to everybody and me yeah. too, even to call yes. it competency yes. <laughs> that, that somehow yes. I walk out in the world thinking I can help somebody when that that's not how this works. Right. It, it helps to have education and understanding, but this like, um, as you were saying, like the combining together of of so many different uh, cultures into to one, you know, document. It doesn't it doesn't help anybody. It it ends up being additionally othering. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think um, if you see like my website, it, it I, I really really try to to live and to to work and to be in community through like these. I have like five different like Hawaiian concepts that that are there. I I try to you know incorporate many others into my world, but one of them is that term ha ha and it's humility. And and for Hawaiian people, um, and for um, for myself personally, like really being humble about where you're coming from, like when when the person is on the other end of of your screen, and I say that because I only do telehealth, but really being humble and really just you know, opening up the space and letting them know that they're safe. Um, and then you can learn about what their culture is. Mm-hmm. It might not be the same, but you can learn. So that goes through for all, you know, all, all of us as providers, I think. Yeah. Um, and me too, I don't just take care of, because there's only a million of us here, right? So clearly mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I'd have no practice if I just took care of, you know, um, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. I, I take care of all sorts of folks and, and I don't, I don't know. So, you know, we, we just sit and, and that would be my message to other providers too. It's just sit um, and create safe space for someone. And it, it all comes out. And at, at the end of the day, we are all human. The word kanaka means human. Maoli is like indigenous, like indigenous to a space, but kanaka, we're all kanaka, we're all human. And so really sitting with the person and, and, trying your best to just help them put together the pieces again so that they feel okay, so that they can take care of their baby, they can take care of themselves, they can do all the things that they need to do. Can I ask, speaking specifically, you know, about pregnancy and postpartum, are there, you know, well, this is maybe too broad of a question, but specifically in terms of perinatal mental health, there's just so many like cultural ties um, for mental health in general, and I think maybe this is really the my some of my question. There, there's so many layers of culture, and this can be like ethnic culture, but family culture, and so many other things. Um, specifically for 
perinatal mental health, and I suppose for Native Hawaiians. Is there any, is there anything that you're seeing or that you can speak to that is, I don't know, related? I can't, my, my, my question machine isn't working. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. like how like what are some you uh some things that you're seeing related to perinatal mental health that might be best supported through a cultural lens? Mm, that's a great question. I think one of the things that we're noticing in our community is especially since 2019 there was a huge stand for Mauna Kea. Mauna Kea is one of our most sacred mountains in Hawaii on Hawaii Island and that really um brought together a, a large portion of um native Hawaiians even you know from from the United States we all kind of came home other Pacific Islanders flew in to support us um and after that what i've noticed in our community is that we we really are there's a, a huge resurgence to reconnect with traditional practices surrounding birth and surrounding parenting um, and rearing our children, our keiki. And one of the things I think that that folks are realizing is that when they enter Western spaces, like say the traditional OBGYN setting and and having a hospital birth, um, many, many of the practices are incongruent with what, you know, our traditional practices were. And so, um, but because of that sort of like, hmm, sort of reconnecting to the idea that we have ea or sovereignty within ourselves and our people, I think many Native Hawaiian women who are are birthing and and going through these very Western systems are really now realizing that way I don't have to do this. It doesn't mm -hmm. feel right, mm -hmm. and I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. And so, I think you know if if you're caring for somebody that is Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander uh, person, it, it's important to recognize that this this is sort of a trend that's going on in our community right now and to make sure that they're connected to all the sources that they could be connected to that are empowering for them. Um, so I mentioned Mana Pacifica up in Northern California. There's also a great service that just one got a grant um, in Hawaii who is training on all the outer islands in training indigenous birth workers and um to to you know to to help women in their community who are our native Hawaiians and, and Pacific Islanders birth with all of these different things. So they're essentially, you know, doulas, if you will, but they're partnering with them to go into these Western systems to allow them just like do as do in many other, you know, with many other folks to allow them to be empowered and to get their needs met. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's, I don't know if that answered your question. I think I went mm -hmm. off a little bit, but, no, but, but there's a huge, a huge sort of push for that right now within our community and a, a reclamation, if you will, of our, of our, of our sovereignty as mothers, as, as families, as birthers, as creators. And so, um, you know, that's, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing folks coming in saying, wow, okay, I can have this. I can have my traditional foods. I can have somebody advocate for me. Wow, this is cool. Okay, this is neat. And those are the things that I see as a clinician. Those are the things that move people. Yes, I can give you a prescription for sertraline. I can do that. Um, is that going to move people? It's going to stabilize some neurons maybe, but is that really going to heal? No, 
It's not. These things are going to heal. Connecting back to to our indigenous practices and and other people that can help us um, and are knowledgeable about what those are and help us to become empowered. Those are the things that are going to heal and that do heal many of my clients. Right. Absolutely. It's not like a direct line um, in so many ways for so many reasons. It's not a direct line from, oh, okay, uh, you have depression. Here is a depression coping skill and now you're better. Um, it Like all of these layers of culture that I think we were talking yes. about um, before, all of that is mental health. It's all physical health. It's all spiritual health. Yes. Like it's it's all the same thing. You can't delineate um, one thing from the next. And I honestly, I think that's a downside of Western medicine, mm. Western yes. lots of stuff is that it is all, you go to this doctor for that and that doctor for that. And there, there's some some benefit to that. I don't want, you know, somebody helping with my heart who's a foot doctor necessarily. True. But, <laughs> yes. But I hear um, you. Yes. Um, but it's it feels like it's become so uh, distinguished from each other um, and delineated rather from each other that the, the point is, is gone, that yes. um, all of it matters for mental health. Yes, it, you're right. And and you'd mentioned the term intersection, you know, that that concept of intersectionality, I think, is something that we see a lot in papers and, and all of this. But really, um, it's great to talk about it because it's true. There's there's all these intersections, but the ways in which our systems work don't support that concept or or looking at it in a really holistic way. Again, for instance, you know, the the follow-up visit for a psych MP typically is 15 minutes and an intake is anywhere from 45 to 90 minutes. My intakes last two hours. My follow-ups are, you know, 50 minutes or so. Um, it depends. I also do lactation. There's, you know, because that's it's all connected, right? Mm-hmm. And I I don't know. Um, and that was another thing that I wanted to be really clear about in my practice. If I was going to name my practice mana, mental health. <laughs> I, I was not going to practice in this Western model um, only to the degree that I had to, right? I mean, I have licenses, I have degrees, I have scope of practice, I have all these things. And I'm, I'm very, I, I totally respect that. But, but nobody says that I need to do this in 15 minutes. <laughs> right. And still, you know, I, I take insurance and I, I bill insurance for my codes um, that most people bill for 15 minutes. I, it's an hour <laughs> for me. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I wanted to create it in a way that I felt like I was going to be whole to in this. And so, um, yeah, all of the things come into play. And I think when caring for Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, especially in the diaspora, especially away from our, our, our homelands, wherever they may be in Oceania, we need to have time to, to hold this person and hold each other. And, um, and so I don't know, that's just what I hope to do. And again, I, I don't just take care of, like I was saying, Native Hawaiians or Pacific Islanders. I take care of all sorts of people. But no matter what, if you're going to come and you're going to see me and I'm going to see you and we're going to work together, I always joke with other clinicians that I'm always going to have people in the dirt. <laughs> There's always going to be my patients. They're going to be like, oh, that's Kalena's patient right there because she's like touching a tree <laughs> or <laughs> her feet are going to be in the water or, you know, she, there's there's stuff like that. Like I, I'm always going to uh, Uncle Israel Kamako Vivoli, he always says, like, you know, we got to figure out how to integrate our Hawaiian-ness into things. And that's what I always try to do with no matter who I'm working with. We need to stop, take time, get back to source um, and figure out all of this together because we're all in it together. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's so much to talk about. 
And I want, I want to get a sense from you just, you know, for this like little hour of our time together. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. And for a limited time, my listeners get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products using the code MIND when you check out at oneskin.co. Well, I've kept up my mini resolution of taking better care of my skin after consistently using OneSkin for several weeks and all is going well. I can't see what's going on at a cellular level, but I can tell you that my skin feels soft and healthy. But they did do some cool research that looked at before and after exposure of the OS1 peptide to skin cells, and the one skin scientist found that the peptide reverses skin's biological age. And you can even see that study by Zonari A. et al. in the NPJ Aging Journal. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code MIND at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code MIND. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. New year, healthier skin. That's one skin. This episode is supported by Ritual. I am by nature and nurture a bit skeptical. I have to see for myself if something works or if it's helpful before I just believe it whole cloth. And I'm open to trying things out to see for myself. And that includes finding strategies for my wellness. I have a historically low vitamin D, so it's important for me to take Ritual's Essential 18 because it has D3 in it, and their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has several other high-quality traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. What I love and have always loved about Ritual is that it's a female-founded company, and it's a B Corp, which means they're holding themselves accountable and not just long-term, but also to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash momandmind. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash momandmind for 25% off. Do you feel like you were able to say what you wanted to say during this this time, or is there other are there other things you would like to leave people with to think about or to feel through, think through? No, I think I think for the most part, I was able to kind of put in the things that I wanted to and that were important. Let me think. There is one last thing, and and you can decide if this fits in or not, but. One thing that um, that I think might be helpful for other practitioners, again, because you know everybody is going to encounter somebody who's Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, maybe in their travels as clinicians, is I've in my fifty years almost of being here, I've only met one person, one, when I said I'm Native Hawaiian, that said to me, "Oh, your people have gone through a lot." All the other people in my time in this realm, have said things like, oh, I love Hawaii. Oh, we vacationed there. Oh, I have a timeshare on Maui. Oh, we went there for it to Kauai to get married. Oh, we're going in June. Oh, we had a luau. Da, 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 da. And so being Native Hawaiian specifically, I cannot speak to you know being any other Pacific Islander, but Native Hawaiian specifically, Almost my entire identity from somebody else is 
is sort of like a, a vacation or a hula dancer with a cellophane skirt or on the dashboard bobbling back and forth. And that is extremely hurtful or can be hurtful, especially mm -hmm. when you go to somebody for care. Mm -hmm. Because automatically now you're a commodity in their mind, yeah, or your mm -hmm. people or your place. Mm -hmm. And it's a very um, quick way to know that mm, I'm probably not going to get the care here. I, I There's no way they can hold space for me mm -hmm. if they automatically think of me and my people as this object or this mm -hmm. thing of pleasure. Mm -hmm. And so that somehow I think would be important to convey to other practitioners if you are caring for somebody that maybe your first connection to that person be something more on a human level if you don't know. And if not, then then something that conveys that you you kind of understand that historical trauma that has taken place and that is still taking place so that they know that that they're in a safe space with you as a human as a, a practitioner a clinician um because that i see it from just from myself is is not something that that has ever come across so so just mm -hmm. that 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 That's would be extremely it. important i think that is uh you know as i was saying before there's so much more to understand there's mm. so much history so much we're, we're just kind of barely touching um, yeah. on a couple of really important points here, but I do want that, what you were just talking about to be the thing that, that, that we leave with folks, um, to think about. Um, I think there's, you know, in kind of arcs of, of stories and podcasts, you know, in some ways you like start off with what was difficult and then you end with what is like, uplifting and hopeful and and there's space for that and also I think this is an important point to leave people with um as to to take forward with them because it would be to exactly to your point it would be like you know following the line of like oh at the things that people associate with maybe going on vacation is like going there to like have a good time and feel good and leave good. And you're leaving out a really important piece of the truth, um, which is what you just described. So yeah. I, re I really hope that people can, can hear that and, um, and take that with them forward. Yeah. Mahalo again for, for creating this space and for asking the questions and for, you know, just having this, um, this venue, if you will, and your time and your energy and your mana put into this. It's a really beautiful thing that you do. You. And um, I think all of us that are in this field are very fortunate to have this podcast um, and to be able to listen to inquisitive questions and to hear other ways of doing things and people's mm -hmm. experiences. So I'm I'm honored to be a awesome. part of all of the others that have come before me and and just part of this whole whole thing. It's it's been really lovely. Thank you so much for, for everything you're doing and for your time and for sharing a piece of you with us here. Yes, yes, of course, of course. Please connect with Kalena at manamentalhealth.com or on Instagram at mana underscore mental underscore health. As usual, sharing these episodes with people that you care about or whoever you think could benefit from this podcast is always welcome as we need to keep continuing this conversation on perinatal mental health 
and how it affects us and those that we care about. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com, where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.